If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And I think historians haven't paid sufficient attention to the role of emotion in both these stories. And nationalism ultimately is a psychological phenomenon, cultural phenomenon, an intellectual phenomenon. That was Sir John Eliot discussing nationalism in history. Listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. Today's interview is with Sir John Elliott who's Regis Professor Emeritus of Modern History at the University of Oxford. He's also the author of a new book, which explores the long history behind Scottish and Catalan nationalism, exploring the similarities and contrasts between the two movements. He spoke to our digital editor, Emma Mason. So, Sir John, um, maybe you could just start by telling us what inspired you to write your new book, Scots and Catalans, Union and Disunion. Well, I was, as a research student, I devoted myself to the history of Spain in the 17th century. And I got very interested in the peripheral region of Spain on the east coast of Catalonia, which revolted against the government of Madrid in 1640, because there was a great deal of uh, fiscal pressure from the central government on a people which had been relatively under tax, uh, the the principality of Catalonia. And so I tried to trace the origins uh, of this 1640 revolt. And so I always had a a real interest in Catalonia and Catalan society. I was living there at the period of Franco's dominance and dictatorship. And it was a very repressive regime where Catalan was in part, the Catalan language was in part prohibited. And I was determined to learn Catalan I had to read it anyhow from my documents in the 17th century. And as a result, um, I got very interested both in the Catalonia of the 17th century and in the Catalonia of the second half of the 20th century. I was living there in the 1950s, 54 to 5, 55 to 6, I think. And um, I made a lot of Catalan friends. So I've always had this interest in Catalonia. 
Uh, but I went on to do other things relating to the history of Spain and Spanish America and Europe in the early modern period, the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries. And then after publishing my last book, which was a sort of semi-autobiographical book called History in the Making, about my historical interests, I was looking around for something new to write and I hadn't thought of going back to Catalan history at all. I felt that was behind me. But it's just at the time when Scotland was, the Scottish Nationalist Party uh, was taking over power in Scotland and developing a program which pointed in the direction of independence. And this coincided with a strong movement for Catalan independence uh, after 2008, the great financial collapse of 2008, there were growing grievances in Catalonia about the situation. So I found myself, I was thinking how interesting it would be to try and find both the similarities and the differences uh, between these two uh, radical nationalist movements uh, of the early 21st century. And I realized that, I, I mean, I'm a historian, not a uh, writer on contemporary politics and so on. And I realized that what was needed uh, would be a comparison that looked back in time over the centuries so that I'd present a sustained comparison from the uh, early or middle Middle Ages right up to uh, December of 2017, uh, which was after the Catalan president, uh, the president of Catalonia, Puigdemont, had fled to Brussels. And um, so it was, it's very much both uh, a long perspective and a, a contemporary vision and trying to interweave the two stories rather than, you know, having one section devoted to Catalonia and one to Scotland. I realized it, although it's technically much more difficult uh, to make comparisons that are interwoven, it's much more interesting because you suddenly see both the similarities and the differences and once you've identified similarities and differences, what you try to do uh, is to explain uh, the reason for them. Why at one point uh, is Catalonia uh, rebellious, whereas Scotland is quiet, or the other way around. Uh, so that it was a tremendous challenge, but enormous fun to do. And I, I must admit that I knew a certain amount of Catalan history, thanks to my investigations in the archives in the 1950s. But I was pretty ignorant, as so many of as are of the history of Scotland. And uh, I therefore felt it necessary to give myself uh, a, a tremendous program of reading in Scottish history all the way through, which is fascinating because the, the level of Scottish historical writing is high. I think it's higher than the level of uh, Catalan historical writing. And um, so I read some very good books and became really intrigued by the history of Scotland and the ups and downs of the nationalist story, uh, both for Scotland and for Catalonia. Excellent. And maybe you could actually just chart that journey a little bit for us, just set the scene in both the, the, the movements in both countries. Yes. Well, it's very interesting that uh, the Catalans have always said that they were from the beginning an independent state, and it's simply not true. Uh, Catalonia was a principality, a rather the same sort of status as Wales. It formed part of a larger union of, called the Crown of Aragon, 
of Aragon, Valencia, and the Principality of Catalonia, and the Balearic Islands. And therefore, it's just part of this, although it's a very, very dynamic part of the Crown of Aragon. But it was never an independent state. Whereas Scotland, from, I think we can say, from the late 13th century onwards, had established itself as an independent sovereign kingdom, recognized as such um, by uh, other European monarchs. Uh, and this meant there's a real difference from the beginning, although the Catalans try and conceal that difference, Catalan radical nationalists, in, in claiming uh, independence from early years uh, for their own society. Uh, I then tried to follow the story through from the establishment of Scottish independence with Wallace and Bruce in the late uh, 13th, early 14th centuries, uh, and then went up to the next great moment for both societies, which is the late 15th and early 16th centuries. In the, and here one has to think in terms of rulers and dynastic marriages, dynastic accidents, deaths, uh, dynastic policies, and so on. And what happened uh, in uh, the Crown of Aragon was that uh, Ferdinand of Aragon uh, married in 1469, Isabella, who was the heiress to the crown of Castile. And when she succeeded, and he succeeded to their respective thrones, the union of the two, which was essentially a dynastic union, uh, the effect of that union was to create what we now know, and they became to know in the 16th century as Spain. So that there was, uh, from that point onwards, from the late 15th century, uh, Spain existed, and it was a Spain that was a plural society in the sense that the crown of Aragon, the parts of it, the kingdoms and the principality of, of Catalonia, preserved their own laws, liberties and institutions. So it was a, an acceptance of pluralism in that union of the crowns. Well, now, if we look at Scotland at the same period, uh, again, there had been matrimonial policies over the centuries, plans for dynastic union between England and Scotland, which hadn't worked out. But in 1503, Henry VII's daughter, uh, Margaret, was married to James IV of Scotland. And that presaged, you might say, a possible uh, Anglo-Scottish Union sometime in the future, rather like the Catalan-Castilian uh, Union. Uh, but what happened was, in this case, that the English obviously hoped that the dynastic union would lead, eventually, to an English takeover of Scotland. And that didn't happen because the, the Tudors died out childless. And as a result, it was the grandson of that marriage, uh, James VI of Scotland, who became James I of England in 1603 uh, on the death of Elizabeth. So the Scots, in a sense, moved into London. And this is an important difference uh, with the Spanish situation. But of course, it wasn't a real union, and James VI was very keen to bring the two nations together. And there were great debates about uh, the assimilation of the two countries, whether this was possible. James was very anxious uh, to assimilate them. 
bring a greater degree of uniformity and above all to establish friendship between two kingdoms which have been really daggers drawn for a very long time. The 16th century was a very difficult century in the sense that Henry VIII's rough wooing of Scotland, as it was called, his pressure on Scotland had alienated them. So the Scots had turned to France to support them. And it was really the, the, the French alliance helped to keep Scotland independent in the first half of the 16th century. The great change came in the 1550s and 60s when, with the Protestant Reformation in both countries. And that brought England and Scotland at least religiously closer together, uh, even though the Scots uh, had, ex had adopted a Calvinist form of Protestantism. But it made it easier for, uh, William, for Elizabeth's great counsellor, William Cecil, to adopt a much more uh, intelligent and suave policy not putting pressure on the Scots, but trying to bring the two countries closer together. And James, in a sense, inherits that, but comes up against enormous difficulties. The English are, are horrified by the appearance of all these Scots in London looking for jobs. The Scots are horrified by the dangers of the English taking over their country, imposing their own religion, imposing their own laws, and so on. So there are tensions in this relationship from the beginning. And those tensions in the 1630s, come to the surface when the Scots rebel against the attempted imposition by Charles I of his new prayer book, which would have brought the Kirk into uh, closer uh, conformity with the Church of England. And there's the famous uh, the revolt of 1637 in Scotland. Further revolt in 1640 when the Scottish army invades England. So you've got a Scottish revolution, actually, at the end of the 1630s and early 1640s, just at the moment, in 1640, when the Catalans are rebelling against the government of Madrid, the government of Philip IV and his favourite minister, the Count Duke of Olivares, which was attempting to mobilise the resources of Catalonia and of other parts of the Spanish periphery, like Portugal, in order to fight his European wars, the Thirty Years' War, in which Spain was so heavily engaged. So you've got the fascinating contrast of two rebellions in the two countries uh, in the early 1640s. Well, in a sense, both those rebellions fail. The Scots, with the restoration of uh, Charles II in 1660, uh, come back, as it were, into the Union. And they'd never been, they'd intervened heavily in British politics. And Cromwell had tried to uh, assimilate them more and um, bring them into Parliament, for instance. But the Scots kept their Parliament the restoration was very much, in 1660, was very much a restoration of the status quo before, the constitutional status quo. And the Catalans, although the revolt was defeated by the forces of Philip IV and Barcelona surrendered in 1652, again, the status quo was as before with the uh, restoration of Catalonia's laws and liberties. So the 1640s are one major point of convergence and divergence between the two. Well, now, our next great point of convergence and divergence is in the early 18th century with the outbreak of the War of the Spanish Succession in which the dynasty of the House of Austria is extinguished with the death of Carlos II and uh, there's a great European struggle uh, over who should be the ruler of Spain, the Austrian candidate or the Bourbon candidate. And uh, 
the England of uh, William III and of Queen Anne gets heavily involved in this struggle too. So that both societies, both countries, Spain and Britain, are involved in this extremely expensive and demanding war. Both have a major succession problem because Queen Anne is going to die without a living heir. So that, again, the similarities and the differences are quite striking, and particularly the similarities at this moment. Well, now, in Britain, the situation is so dire from the point of view of, of London that they can't afford to have uh, a Scotland independent with possibly a French help, so that some arrangement must be made. And the Scottish situation is equally dire because the Scottish elite had put all its money into this crazy colonial project, the Darien project in Panama, to found a Scottish colony at the end of the 17th century. They'd all lost their money, so there was a, a, a tremendous need among the elite for more cash. And this desire for cash on the one hand, and the desire for a safe Protestant Scotland on the other, brought the two together to, 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 to talk. And this led, after very difficult negotiations, to the Anglo-Scottish Union of 1707, which in fact was a treaty between two sovereign powers, uh, the Kingdom of England and the Kingdom of Scotland, which happened to be ruled by the same monarch, Queen Anne. So in a sense, you've got a, a, a treaty between the two. And what that treaty does in 1707, the Act of Union, the Scottish Parliament is abolished and the Scots uh, get seats in the House of Commons and the House of Lords. Their financial problems are potentially resolved by giving them what they've always wanted, which is inclusion into England's overseas trade, which is beginning to boom, and to the England's overseas colonies in America. So that's the quid pro quo of 1707. It's a bargain that doesn't entirely work out for a long time and leads to many tensions, including the 1715 uprising of the Jacobites. But in a sense, it is a mutually agreed union, at least between the elites of the two countries. Well, now, if you look at what's happening with Catalonia and Spain, Castile, at the same moment, the armies of the Bourbon pretender, Philip V, as he becomes, who is the great-grandson of Louis XIV of France, move in on Catalonia. Barcelona, after a heroic defence, surrenders in 1714. And already Valencia and Aragon had been captured by Philip V's armies and had had their liberties and privileges removed. And in 1716, this same system of authoritarian government is imposed on Catalonia. So Catalonia loses its laws and liberties and its privileges, and uh, there's a deliberate policy from Madrid to make it uniform in its laws and customs with Castile. So there is a real difference there. The Scots have managed to bargain to keep their own laws and their own kirk, the church system of Scotland, and their own universities, their educational system. Those go largely in Catalonia. Uh, the laws are assimilated by and large to those of Castile, made uniform. The, the universities are abolished and one, a new university uh, set up uh, in the town of Severa in Catalonia. And um, the Catalans at that point are part of, uh, of a Spain which has become an authoritarian Spain 
without really serious parliamentary institutions. So there's a great difference there. Well, now, if we move forward in the 18th century, which again is a critical century for the two countries, the Scots get heavily involved in the British imperial project, which makes them more accepting of the possibilities to be gained from the Union. Not everybody, of course, accepts that. And you've got in Scotland, what you don't have in Catalonia, uh, a potential alternative monarch in the person of the young pretender, the Jacobite, uh, so that you get the first Jacobite uprising, as we all know, is 1715. The second and much more serious one is 1745, when the young pretender is actually marching south and there's real panic in London that the uh, Jacobite forces uh, are going to be successful. Uh, in fact, the panic is exaggerated. Culloden, of course, ends that dream uh, of the Jacobites effectively. And then there's real repression in the Highlands uh, by Duke of Cumberland and the British forces, which is comparable in some ways to the repression uh, of Catalonia after 1714. But it's, it's a lost cause, effectively, uh, after 1745, the Scottish Jacobite cause. So that Scots increasingly, and particularly the Lowland Scots, are concerned to make the best of the deal, and they're attracted by these English economic improvements. Scottish landowners begin copying uh, the programs of improvement of their estates. The Highlands are reduced to increasingly uh, a, a Gaelic-speaking Gaelic minority. They've been treated traditionally, even by the Edinburgh, as a barbaric society. And uh, increasingly, therefore, in a sense, they're marginalised Although the, the romantic image of the Highlands becomes very important in the 19th century, once the danger's gone, you can, you can then glorify the tartan and so on, which have been abolished or prohibited. And of course, when George IV uh, comes to Edinburgh uh, and wears the tartan, in a sense, it makes it respectable. So that the Scots, therefore, are playing a major part in... Uh, the British overseas colonization, in a sense, are the co-founders of the British Empire in the 18th and 19th century. You find Scots everywhere. If you look at the Scottish diaspora, and in India, in America, in the Caribbean, and so on, uh, they're often dom the dominant players uh, in the imperial game. The Catalans, by contrast, uh, are largely marginalized from the Spanish Empire, which is controlled by Castile. They don't get jobs. They're, it's difficult for them to move there. There's some trade, but they're not part of the imperial project in the same way. And that's an important difference between the two societies in the 18th century. But the Catalans make the best of a bad job. They decide what they dedicate themselves to doing now is to improving their economy. And you get the beginnings of industrialization in later 18th century Catalonia based on the textile industry, just as you get the beginnings of industrialization in Scotland, again, based on the textile industry, the late 18th, early 19th centuries. So both societies, both Scotland and Catalonia, are ready for a kind of industrial takeoff by the 19th century. And this, again, uh, is a, an important similarity, but it's an important difference, precisely because, although the Scottish economy 
is very often a booming economy in the 19th and early 20th centuries. It's never dominant in the British economy as a whole. Whereas Catalonia is the dominant economic part of the Spanish peninsula right through the 19th century and into the 20th century. What, 20% even today of the gross national product of Spain uh, is due to Catalonia. And this is very different from the proportion of, of Scotland and England. So that's an, a, a major difference. So you get in Spain, Madrid is a political capital, but Barcelona is the economic capital, whereas in Britain, uh, London is essentially both the financial and the political uh, capital, and to some extent the economic capital as well. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Well, the next major change affecting both societies is the coming of the French and, and American revolutions of the late 18th century, the rise of liberalism and nationalism, and above all, the coming of the Romantic movement of the late 18th and early 19th century, when uh, historians, folklorists, writers begin to explore the history of the two societies. You get Walter Scott, for instance, in Scotland, uh, writing these novels of medieval Scotland, which are enormously popular, not just in Scotland, but across the continent, including in Catalonia. Uh, so there's an influence of Walter Scott, but at the same time, there's exploration of the language and of the literature of the medieval and later centuries in, in both societies. And during the course of the 19th century, uh, at a time when the Scots, as I've said, have created this sense of a romantic Scotland, medieval Scotland, uh, independent Scotland, which is true, based on constitutional rights, but also uh, closely affiliated with the rights of England. Catalonia, in the middle of the 19th century, has what it calls the Renaissance, the Renaissance in Catalan, when uh, they re-establish medieval troubadours, games and songs and so on. They have literary competitions. And you get a tremendous emphasis on the language, on Catalan language as a spoken and written language. Catalan had always been talked in parts of Catalonia, although the elite had increasingly been speaking Castilian in the 18th and early 19th centuries. But Catalan is becoming a respectable language again from the middle of the 19th century and will be taken up increasingly by the professional and middle classes in later 19th century Barcelona in particular. And as a result, the language becomes for Catalonia the great marker of identity, the point of reference for nationalism, whereas Gaelic is never the point of reference for Scottish nationalism. The Scots look back to the period of independence, they look back to a glorious past, in the glorious Middle Ages, they look back to the kind of society based on contractual ideas, relation, contractual relationship between the ruler and the ruled. 
But at the same time, uh, language is never uh, the real marker of, of Scottish identity in the 20th and 21st centuries. So we can move forward again. Uh, the 19th century, the Scots are very much left to their own devices during the course of the 19th century, and in a sense, uh, semi-self-governing. But London has the ultimate word. And there are growing reasons for grievance in 19th century Scotland. You know, they feel very often that their interests are not being given proper priority by London, which is true. They feel that the English don't understand them, which also is very often true. So that although you get increasing intermarriage and interrelationships of Scots and English in the 19th century, there's an annoying sense of grievance. And I think it's the, the, there's an editorial, famous editorial in the Times in the 1850s, which says the Scots are a country in manifest want of a grievance. And that sense of a grievance, that annoying sense of grievance, does play its part in the maintenance and the fermenting uh, of Scottish nationalism. But in comparison with the Catalans, Scottish grievances are frankly minimal. The Catalans uh, are the, in a sense, among the victims of 19th century Spanish politics, which is a constant series of pronunciamientos, coup d'etat by generals, repressive military regimes. Uh, Barcelona is bombarded twice by government forces in the 1840s. You can't imagine Edinburgh being bombarded in the 1840s uh, by uh, English forces. So that there's real grounds for grievance there and in, in Catalonia of a kind that, in my view, doesn't exist in Scotland. But there's a growing movement in both countries for what we might call home rule. It is, of course, called home rule in, in Britain and is sparked off particularly by the Irish problem, insoluble Irish problem, which stimulates the Scots to think about home rule for Scotland. Although it's a very minimalist home rule compared with what the Catalans are beginning to demand in the later 19th century. And because they feel, the Catalans feel, that there's so little understanding of them in, by Madrid, they begin to develop theories of, of nationalism in the 1890s and around 1900, in which, following on that romantic idea of the nation as something organic, they insist that Catalonia is an organic nation. And then they look at Spain and they say Spain is an artificial creation. The Spanish state is just a state, an artificial creation, whereas we are the authentic nation. The Spanish nation doesn't exist effectively. So you get this, this growing assumption by the radical nationalist Catalans that, in effect, we must have real home rule. And there's a, an important Catalan political party, uh, the Liga of the early 20th century, led by the, the greatest Catalan politician of the period, Cambo, uh, who tried and established a high degree of self-rule in Catalonia, and they get some of the way. They, they do manage to form a sort of a Catalan commu political community, but everything comes to a halt when General Primo de Rivera launches a coup d'etat in 1923 and you get a new repressive regime 
moves against the Catalan language again. And this is followed, of course, by the fall of Primo de Rivera a few years later, the abdication of uh, Alfonso XIII of Spain, the creation of a Spanish Republic in the early 1930s, which gives Catalonia what's known as a statute of effectively semi-autonomy. It's not full autonomy, but it's a high degree of autonomy. Well, now all this is swept away again with the uprising of Franco, the imposition of Franco's dictatorship, which of course will last right up from 1939 to the death of Franco in 1975. I was living in Catalonia in the early 1950s. I tried to use the Catalan language when I asked a, a policeman the, the direction in, in Barcelona, and he immediately said, speak the language of the empire. The Catalan was a, a prohibited language, for official terms anyhow, and street names had been changed and so on. Literature in Catalan was banned for a long time, although it gradually loosened up the restrictions uh, in later years. But um, there was this repressive regime established by the Franco dictatorship. And as you can imagine, uh, as soon as Franco fell and Spain made the transition to democracy and to a parliamentary democracy after the end of the dictatorship, the question of the relationship of the various parts of the peninsula to Madrid had to be worked out afresh. And you get a Spanish constitution of 1978, a new constitution, which again gives autonomy to various regions of Spain. In the end, there are 17 regions of Spain. Uh, the Catalans get a very high degree of autonomy with their own parliament, their own president, and so on. And the years after 1978 are the best years of Catalan history. Between 1978 and the financial crash of 2008, the Catalans effectively never had it so good, both politically and financially. Everything will change in 2008, but um, uh, effectively, it was a prosperous, outward-looking society, which famous for the Olympic Games, 1992, which were beautifully managed. Now, in Scotland, you'd got also a home rule movement, which began to gather strength. There was growing fear about the rise of the Scottish National Nationalist Party. Winifred Ewing's victory in the by-election was a portent of what might come, and the Conservatives first panicked. Uh, Edward Heath began to talk about devolution. Labour was less keen on the idea of devolution, but gradually it too uh, came round to it. And in 1997, with Blair's victory, it was agreed to have a referendum in Scotland, the 1997 referendum. There had already been a referendum which had been turned down for independence earlier because a threshold had been established as a result of what was known as the Cunningham Amendment, by which unless a certain, there was a certain turnout and a certain proportion of votes, uh, it would not get through, and it didn't get through. But 1997, the Blair government agreed to a new referendum. The referendum w was heavily in favour of a Scottish Parliament. And so that the Parliament was re reinstated. And interestingly and symbolically, the architect of that new Scottish Parliament was a Catalan, Enrique Miralles, who'd been influenced by the Scottish countryside and so on, and tried to capture the essence of Scotland in that building. Unfortunately, he died 
before the building was built, so it didn't have its personal touch, as it were. How much is nationalism a mentality of us and them, the misaligned politics? I think it's a question of empathy. Ultimately, it's psychological, I think. You have a sense of your own fatherland, country, to which you're emotionally attached. You can have a dual patriotism, which most Scots have, and most Catalans had until quite recently. But if the pressure comes, becomes too great on one side or the other, you get friction. And then you fall back on your own fatherland, your own patria. And it's emotion that takes over. And I think historians haven't paid sufficient attention to the role of emotion in both these stories. And nationalism ultimately is a psychological phenomenon, a cultural phenomenon an intellectual phenomenon. And uh, that has to be appreciated uh, by historians. They think about social issues and so on, or economic questions. And the economy is really not important for fanatical Catalan separatists. It just so Spain is, Spain is robbing us, we can go, alone, go it alone. The Scots were saying, we've got North Sea oil, we can go it alone. And they can claim that they're not getting their fair, fair deal uh, out, of Scot out of North Sea oil. And so that the emotion comes into play at a certain moment. And emotions can rise and fall according to circumstances. And that's why I've been trying to contextualize all the time the outbreaks of nationalism and the moments when life is quieter, both in the local society and in the central society. And that's been the purpose of my book, really, to make understandable why you get this curious trajectory of up and down, up and down, cycles of nationalism. And you have to bear in mind then psychological issues and the role of personalities. I mean, a charismatic leader or a demagogue can have enormous impact in a society which, for other reasons, may have its grievance, like the... Uh, <coughs> the financial and economic collapse of uh, 2008. And looking a little further back, what impacted the, the, the two world wars, the decline of empire, what landmark moments in the two countries' history, yes. indeed world history, um, what impact did they have? That's, that's an important question, actually, because Spain lost most of its American empire uh, 188 to 20, effectively, so that it was left only with Cuba, the Philippines, and Puerto Rico. Well, the Catalans, Catalan businessmen moved into Cuba in a big way in the 19th century and did very well out of it. But the loss of empire already was, had been a terrible blow to the sense of Spain. I mean, it had reduced the Spanish world effectively to the peninsula itself instead of being a transatlantic world. And in 1898, Spain, the Spanish-American War uh, meant the loss of, of Cuba, Puerto Rico and the Philippines. And that was a tremendous shock to the Spanish psyche. It was a shock to the Catalans who'd invested so effectively in Cuba in the late 19th century. And a feeling that the Spanish governments were absolutely incompetent, hopeless, uh, volatile and so on. So there was a real sense of uh, 
disagreement and disillusionment, I think I should say, uh, with Madrid governments. Now, if we look at the British Empire, uh, it was a tremendously successful and going concern uh, right up to the Second World War. And Spain, where Spain didn't participate in the Great War, of course, the Scottish regiments were fighting with our British regiments, and if anything, it strengthened the sense of British solidarity. But um, with the loss of empire in the post-Second World War settlement, obviously, again, the Scots had less out, fewer outlets for their energy, energies and their talents. And again, it reduced the space to the British Isles themselves. And of course, Ireland had already got its independence in 1921. So that uh, it was a very reduced space. And I think once, once you lose your overseas interests, as has happened with the loss of both these empires, you get more focused, more concentrated on, and more obsessed by the uh, domestic politics. And that, I think, plays its part too uh, in strengthening uh, the movements for stronger and stronger home rule and devolution. You've mentioned earlier um, a sort of romanticised history. Yeah. To what extent is that history real? Well, it's real in the sense that Catalonia was defeated by the Royal Armies in 1652 and by the Royal Armies in 1714. What it doesn't take into account uh, is that not all Catalans were in favour of rebellion, not all Catalans were in favour of the Austrian candidate for the Spanish throne. So again, there are divisions uh, from the beginning. And I'm very struck by the fact, for instance, my, my book, my first book, The Revolt of the Catalans, about the 1640 revolt, uh, I showed a very divided society. And they haven't been talking about 1640 in their claims to independence. It's very selective history. You go back to the Middle Ages, which again, uh, you have all the legends about um, the founding of Catalonia, uh, the independence of Catalonia, which by and large are very slanted in order to show the continuity of a Catalan nation over time and the continuity of Catalan politics, etc., which isn't true. And you get the same desire for continuity, uh, I think, in Scottish historiography, uh, trying to trace it through. And again, where obviously certain things did happen, but there's clearly been an over-romanticization of the, of the, of the 45, uh, there's been a, a sense of victimization at certain points in Scottish historical writing, uh, a failure to uh, understand perhaps the other side of the story, which again is a question of, you know, how do you, how do you put yourself in the shoes of the other? And that's what historians ought to be doing. And, um, and by and large, as I said, I think Scottish historical writing is of a pretty high standard. Uh, and uh, so you don't get that same sense of deliberate manipulation uh, as you do uh, in, um, uh, in Catalan uh, historical writing. But there are always opportunities uh, to emphasize those aspects of the past which support your vision of the present and your vision for the future. 
and to play down domestic divisions. And I think that is important, that uh, you, these nationalists, radical nationalists or separatists, claim to be speaking for the whole of society, for the whole of the nation. And this simply is not true. And it's this desire to provide a, monol provide a monolithic picture, whether it's Scotland or Catalonia over the centuries, which I think is, is a dangerous tendency. That was Sir John Eliot. His book, Scots and Catalans, Union and Disunion, is out now in both the UK and the US, published by Yale University Press. And that is all for today. But please do listen in on Thursday, when we're going to be exploring the debates around memorials to controversial historical figures. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. Thank you.